Malachi 1, 2 through 5 is wonderful, but it is difficult. It is difficult, so you have to be ready for that. You're going to be challenged, and that is really, really good that we're challenged uh, because being challenged can strengthen our faith and deepen our love for God. God's purpose in these verses is to remind his people of his electing and particular love for them so that his subsequent rebuke of them comes in the context of his covenant love. God rebukes because he loves. The doctrine of election, which opens Malachi and serves as the rationale for God's love for Israel, is a highly controversial topic among Christians. It shouldn't be, but it is. And if I am to be a faithful pastor uh, and to love you well, I must preach the whole counsel of God and not avoid difficult verses. Uh, Pay attention to my preaching methodology. Verse by verse, expository preaching holds me accountable. I preach what God puts in the text. And some red flags should go up for you. If we come to particular verses and I skip over those verses, you should be thinking, what's going on there? Why isn't he dealing with those verses? Election is hard. But it's really good, and God wants you to delight in it. Malachi 1, 2 through 5 may be difficult to understand, but if we study and think hard to understand, if we humbly receive what the Spirit teaches through these verses, our faith will be strengthened and our love for God will be deepened. My guess is some of you will really struggle with Malachi 1, 2 through 5. God's sovereign election as the basis for his covenant love is not immediately easy to swallow for many people. Your theology might be confronted. You may be uncomfortable with what I say. But at the end of the day, I hope you pour yourself over Scripture to see if what I say is true. And in that journey, I hope you come to grasp more God's covenant love for you. These verses may actually lead you to an impasse between what you feel should be true about God and what actually is true about God. And if you find that your theology clashes with God's Word at any point, my counsel is please adjust. You adjust. Don't adjust what his word says. Please know also that I feel tension in myself over these things. Okay? I have some deep questions that I don't know the answers to regarding these types of things. I'm not under the delusion that I have resolved every tension, nor that I can resolve every tension you may feel with this passage. But I do want to help you see the beauty of God's electing love more clearly, which only the Holy Spirit can do through His Word. So let's trust the Spirit together to work in us, to unify us in His Word and in His fatherly love. I'm going to stretch this sermon into two weeks. Uh, hopefully this, this week sets us up 
uh, to better understand this text, and, and then we'll study it in greater detail next week. Now, you probably don't love going to the dentist. I don't know too many people that love going to the dentist, but praise God for dentists, right? Praise God for dentists. They're a blessing. We shouldn't forget what our mouth would be if we hadn't gone to the dentist. Sometimes dentists, they'll administer something called Novocaine. Not my favorite thing in the world uh, to receive those little shots that really hurt. Um, But Novocaine is really, really, really good. Dentists give us just a little bit of pain so that we can more easily accept the greater pain that is inevitably coming. Novocaine prepares us. It prepares us to receive something really good, but something that can be painful. Dentists do wonderful things. If you think about it, we're glad for dentists, but they do some painful things. So the dentist is gracious to give you a little bit of Novocaine so that when the big important stuff happens in your mouth, you are more ready to receive it. It it becomes more acceptable to you. And this morning might be a little bit like that. I hope to administer a little bit of theological Novocaine. Um, Some of these thoughts, they might actually hurt on their own. And I recognize that, but they're meant to, uh, to prepare us for wonderful things, necessary things that are coming in the text, in Malachi 1, 2 through 5, that, that might actually feel painful for you. Hopefully not, but they might. But those things are really, 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 really good for you. So here's the theological Novocaine. Several questions and then some thoughts, and I hope this works. Do you know and understand more or less than God? Now that sounds silly, but some professing Christians refuse to believe certain things God says in his word because it just doesn't seem right to them. They cannot conceive that certain things about God would be true. So they ignore and they critique and they misinterpret Scripture because they prefer their perspective to God's perspective. It's a danger for all of us, really. We we all are tempted to do this. Look at what the evangelical church has done with homosexuality. Look at what the evangelical church has done with God's wrath. Look at what the evangelical church has done with the doctrine of hell. The Bible speaks clearly on these things, and yet so many professing Christians ignore and critique and misinterpret Scripture because they want something else to be true. Listen to what God says about His knowledge. This is all coming from Scripture. I'm going to move quickly. Do you know the balancings of the clouds, the wondrous works of Him who is perfect in knowledge? Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times. Things not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways. Ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts, 
Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Now, here's what God says about our understanding. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Do you know more or less than God? You can't understand God or his word until God himself graciously opens your heart and mind and gives you understanding. Malachi needs to be spiritually discerned or else it will not be discerned. If you try to discern this with human wisdom, you're done. You you won't get it. You'll miss it entirely. Only the spirit of God can help you get this. God will unveil for you incredible things in his word, wonderful, unpack wonderful mysteries for you from his word. But you must be humble, teachable, and completely dependent upon the teaching of the Holy Spirit. Another question, will you believe whatever God tells you in his word? Last week, we saw that Malachi was breathed out by God. Are you ready to believe whatever Malachi says and adjust your views so that it is in line with Malachi? You see, there are a lot of people who reject portions of God's word because they prefer their own extremely limited perspective to God's absolute and comprehensive perspective. Are you ready to believe whatever God reveals to you in his word. And you need to answer that honestly. This might be a clash of worldview here for you. Another question. Is God really sovereign over everything? Everything. Really? The answer in scripture is an explicit. It's not even hidden. It's an explicit yes. God's absolute sovereignty over all things is a thread throughout the Bible. Let me show you one scripture. There are many we could go to, but I just want to show you one and then offer you a logical argument, which I hope uh, helps you understand and then apply the sovereignty of God. First, the passage. Ephesians 1 verse 11 says this, in him... We have obtained an inheritance, yes, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God has a purpose and he works all things according to the counsel of his will. That is a clear statement of God's absolute sovereignty over all things. Here's the logical argument that I personally believe removes all doubt about God's absolute sovereignty. My reasoning is built upon classical Christianity's affirmation of four critical biblical truths about God. Number one, God is eternal. He always was, he always is, he always will be. Number two... God is omniscient. 
He knows all there is to know, including the future. Number three, God created everything. In the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. Number four, God is good. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Now, if you affirm those four biblical truths, God is eternal, God is omniscient, God created everything, and God is good, God's absolute sovereignty logically follows. Here's the logical argument. Before anything existed, time or matter, God existed. Before God made the first move of creation, before the beginning, God had exhaustive knowledge of exactly what would unfold after he began creating. He knew the end from the beginning. Therefore, we must conclude that God freely chose to create the universe knowing humanity would rebel against him. He created humanity knowing he would save many of them from their sins and the rest would die in their sins. Both Calvinists and Arminians need to grapple with the reality that God had the option of not creating, but instead made a definitive choice to create some for eternal life and some for eternal death. And his definitive choice was supremely good. God wrote the storyline. He is the creator and we are his creation. He writes whatever story he wants and yet his mysterious storyline coincides with his good purpose and his good plan because God is supremely good and we are left to marvel at the mystery of it all. This elicits deep questions in us. But please pay attention, unless we tamper with the character and nature of God, unless we change him to suit our human sensibilities, we cannot deny that God made a definitive choice before the beginning. I don't see an orthodox or a God-glorifying way around it. So when the Bible tells us that God has an eternal and good purpose and works everything according to the counsel of his good will, even if we don't understand it all, we must trust that God has told us the truth. Trust that God is good. Trust that God has a plan that is good. Trust that he knows what he's doing and that perhaps, perhaps we don't see things like he does. We have one of two choices, brothers and sisters. We can trust God and love him and cherish him in our limited knowledge and scope, or we can reject him entirely as he is presented in Scripture or refashion him according to what we want him to be. Christians love to debate God's absolute sovereignty and man's free will. They love to quote texts to defend They love to debate double predestination or election or God's purpose and plan and will. All the while, there stands this logical truth, an obvious truth, in the beginning God created. There stands the apparent truth that apart from any outside compulsion and only by his good and free will, God decisively chose to create while knowing the end. He even knew all that he had purpose to do 
and not do inside of time and space. He knew it all before he created anything. The only reason reasonable conclusion that makes sense of that is that God is absolutely sovereign and has a mysterious and good purpose and plan for the universe that coincide with the holiness and perfection of his nature all for his glory. We must trust God on this. And when we do, let me make you a promise. Glorious, glorious things surface for us in his word that we otherwise would have missed. Wonderful, uh, comforting, joy-inducing things. Pay attention to this line. It'll be on Facebook this week, I trust. The sovereignty of God in election is the gateway to the extravagant love of God. Oh, that we would not simply know the sovereignty of God, but delight in the sovereignty of God so that we can more fully delight in the lavish love of God. Embracing God's absolute sovereignty by faith opens you up to see the glory of the love of God in Malachi. If you try uh, to make Malachi 1, 2 through 5 say something other than what it actually says, you undermine God's defense of his abundant love for you. You wouldn't want to do that, would you? Undercut his defense of his love for you? The sovereignty of God and the love of God are inseparable in Malachi 1, 2 through 5. Can't separate them. They come together. Another question. Can God do anything that he pleases? You might feel like God should do things that please you. If God must do what pleases you and me, then we are God and he answers to us. But God is an absolute free being who needs no one else, nor does he answer to any but himself. God does as he pleases. And everything that pleases him is good, is good. Some things about God may not immediately seem good to us. We might have questions about them. It might not make sense to us. But God is good, and therefore all that he does is good and right and beautiful and pure and entirely justified. God does what he pleases. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 135, verse 6 adds, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. You know, Nebuchadnezzar went loco. You might know the story. Uh, But then, all of a sudden, his reason returned to him. He starts thinking lucidly. And and listen to what he said, Daniel 4.35. All the inhabitants, this is Nebuchadnezzar, a secular king, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Just read the Bible. Live life, and you will find God does some extreme things. Do you believe that all that God chooses to do is ultimately good? 
The Father, the Son, and the Spirit act in perfect oneness in order to please God alone, and it is good. Does this lead you to question God, or does this lead you to worship God? Last Novocaine question. Are all people really sinners? And do they really deserve God's just and eternal judgment? Here's how God answers that. I'm going to move quickly again. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis 8, 21. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Psalm 51, verse 5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm 58, verse 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Ecclesiastes 9, 3, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live and after that they go to the dead. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jesus weighs in in Mark 7, 21 through 23. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slender, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. And I'll say this, Jesus did not believe that man was essentially good. How does God respond to wicked sinners? If you jump ahead to Malachi 4 verse 1, it says this, for behold, the day is coming burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Those who believe that people are born innocent, that that humans are basically good-natured, hold a view that conflicts with God's view. They don't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Total depravity helps make sense of Malachi 1, 2 through 5 and amplifies, trust me, amplifies the lavish love of God. For a moment, can we conceal We can't really, but try not, you know, conceal the grace of God and the awesomeness of Jesus Christ. Just conceal that for a moment. If every single human being was left to their own sinful desires, it would be right, it would be good for God to destroy all of us. It would be right, it would be good for God to save none of us. Why? Because every human being, you and me included, freely chooses according to their nature to rebel against God and glory, gloat, enjoy their shameful depravity. Apart from Jesus, no one has ever done anything good in God's eyes. 
Everyone's life is shot through with wickedness and evil. When you embrace that terrifying truth, when you embrace that reality about yourself and about everyone else, then, brothers and sisters, then you are open to understanding the abundant love of God. Only then. You see, grace will not be so amazing for you if you think people are basically good and that hell is a little too radical, a little bit too, oh, God, I don't know if you really should have, a bit too severe. You see, you won't understand the extent of God's love. You'll miss it. When you realize that God owes nothing to anyone and that only the only thing that we all deserve is God's righteous good and swift judgment and wrath and destruction, then the love of God can become proportionately amazing, proportionately enjoying, proportionately glorious. Then the truth of Jesus Christ can take your breath away. I truly believe I really do, that our wonder and enjoyment of the love of God is greatly hindered by our inflated view of ourselves. If we're really not that bad, then God's love for us is really not that needed or that exceptional or that astounding, and so we minimize his love because we think we're great. We're not great. We're terrible. We deserve hell. And then... Jesus, 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 the amazingness and the astoundingness of Jesus who saves us. Then we start getting it. You see, though evangelical Christians all across the United States love to talk about the love of God, they they greatly devalue it by diminishing God's justice. Because they don't want to talk about that. That's hard to talk about. So they minimize that and at the same time they don't even see what they're doing to just shrink God's love into just this thing that he just has randomly for everybody that's ever, there's no particular love of God. A saving love. You see, God's love becomes less compelling for people because they don't feel the weight of his terrifying wrath. His judgment, think about it. You will celebrate uh, the, the, the recovery from um, a headache, a mild headache, much less than you will celebrate the full recovery from a terminal illness. You won't experience the extravagant, extravagance of God's love as you should as you should, until you are struck more and more by the wickedness of human nature and the odiousness of sin. Excuse me. That's what happens when I don't drink. Need to drink more water. God help me with that discipline in my life. Now, you might be thinking, that's supposed to be theological Novocaine. That hurt enough on its own. Thank you very much. That's not helping. And I understand that. I know that I condensed a lot of biblical theology and a lot of serious topics down in just a few little comments in one sermon. I know that. Um, However, my hope is that these thoughts prepare you to better understand Malachi 1, 2 through 5. 
uh, and, and really the entire book of Malachi. They are purposeful thoughts. I'm not just saying it to them to be hard. They're purposeful. And I hope that it becomes clear for you how these thoughts apply to Malachi 1, 2 through 5. So for the rest of the time, I just want to deal with a portion of verse 2, and then we'll pick up um, next week with the rest of verses 2 through 5. So let's establish one thing from the text. God loves his chosen people. God loves his chosen people. Last week, I I talked about Malachi prophesying to post-exilic Judah, who returned home to Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple uh, and resumed temple worship. They were religious people doing religious things, but they were spiritually apathetic. They were cold toward God and indulging in sin. They were spiritually disillusioned and spiritually disappointed because God didn't seem to be doing what he had told them that he was going to do, and that was frustrating. He didn't seem to be honoring his promises and doing anything good for them. I said, quote, the book of Malachi is God's scathing but gracious rebuke of his people. And it is, and it's sort of this wake-up call, the spiritual wake-up call from God. And yet notice how God begins his scathing rebuke. I have loved you, says the Lord. (laughs) I have loved you. The Hebrews suggest a past and continuing love. It's not past as in I used to love you, but now because you were so messed up, I don't love you anymore. That's not what God was saying. I loved you back then and I continue to love you now is what he was getting at. Now, ask yourself the question, why would God begin a scathing rebuke with telling them he loves them? That seems a little odd. And I think God wanted to remind Israel of his electing covenant love for them so that his rebuke would come in the context of his incredible love for them. Love in verse 2 is much more than a deep affection or delight. It's, it's like what Moses said in Israel, uh, to Israel in Deuteronomy 4.37, and because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them. It, it was God's electing covenant love. It was love based on his sovereign choice and promise. Dr. Ian uh, Duguid wrote this, Love in this context is not an emotional feeling, but rather a covenantal term that expresses the behavior that flows out of committed relationship. End of quote. How did that loving relationship begin? How did it start? Well, God chose or elected to pour out his covenant love upon Israel. Before he rebuked Israel, God reminded them that they were his chosen and precious and beloved covenant people. God said, I have loved you. You, that's exclusively Israel, not all the other nations of the world. Israel, that's who he's talking to. God was expressing particular love for Israel. And verse 2 solidifies that point, yet I have loved whom? Jacob. Jacob, did Israel descend from Esau? The answer to that is no. All right, no, he did not. Or no, they did not. The nation of Israel descended from Jacob, the one whom God gave the name 
Israel, the one whom received God's covenant promises alone. Had Israel been faithful to God, had Israel merited God's choice somehow? No, go back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Go back to Moses. Go back to the judges. Go back to King Saul, King David, King Solomon, any of the kings. Pick a king. Go back to the prophets, including Malachi. Israel continuously broke God's covenant over and over and over and over again. They merited nothing. So then isn't the logical question to ask, how in the world could God continue to love Israel when they have been so utterly unfaithful to him? Well, the answer to that is simple. Covenant. Covenant. A word used seven times by Malachi in this book. Despite Israel's unfaithfulness, God still loved them because he had made a covenant with Abraham, and God never breaks his promises. God never breaks a covenant. He will honor every single thing that he said he will do. Now, if you're my children, or not if you're my children, if you go to my children and you ask them, what is a covenant? They will be able to tell you a covenant is a solemn bond between two or more persons. They'll be able to give you that intellectual answer. My children are intellectuals. Dr. Mark Jones said it like this, at its most basic level, a covenant is an oath-bound relationship between two or more parties. God swore an oath with Abraham and entered into relationship with him. God promised him a son who would be his heir, but even more, God had Abraham look at the the myriad of stars in the beautiful sky, and he said this, so shall your offspring be. God said, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And God eventually told Abraham this, and I will establish my covenant between me and you, love this, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And this is great. I will be their God. Every time offspring is used there, it's pointing in part to Israel in Malachi's day. God promised to be their God. He would not forget. You see, God chose Abraham. God elected Abraham. And Abraham did nothing to influence his choice. God initiated the relationship. Abraham was just this pagan living in his sin in a foreign land away from the worship of God. And yet God came to him and God chose to set up a loving covenant with him and his undeserving offspring, I have loved you, says the Lord. God still loved undeserving Israel because God was bound to the promise that he had made. Over 120 years before Malachi prophesied, Jeremiah prophesied this. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel and they shall be my people. 
I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. I have continued to be faithful to you. I have continued to pour out my love upon you. It is my choice to honor my covenant to pour out love and favor upon you. God promised to love his chosen people forever, 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 forever. In the face of God's everlasting covenant love, this was Israel's sentiment. How have you loved us? How? In other words, how are you loving us right now, God? Where's the proof that you love us right now after all that has been happening here? How could they feel that way? Post-exilic Israel was questioning God's love in their unfavorable political and economic and spiritual circumstances. Things were not as they hoped they would be, but their unfavorable circumstances were not to be interpreted as God's hatred for them. God still loved them. He was not forsaking them. He would honor his covenant. Dr. Duguid noted this, so to question the Lord's love is not to voice doubts about his inner emotional state, but to impugn the faithfulness of his actions toward his people, wagging the finger at God. How are you loving us? Because we don't see any evidence of it. That was the posture of Israel. Israel questioned God's covenant love. They questioned his trustworthiness, really. So what did God do? He defended his love. He made an argument. He gave them an answer. You want to know that I love you? Let me say a few things about that. And he did. So God defended his love. And it may surprise you that God used the doctrine of election to defend or to vindicate his love for Israel. God believes that election is inseparable from his love. This is God's perspective. So let's bring this home real quick. What difference does this make for us? And I want to ask this. Do you know what Paul said in Galatians 3.29? And if I was in your shoes, I'd say, nope. Could you tell us? Uh, so I have it in my notes, so I'll just read it for us. This is what God says in Galatians 3.29. Please, please get this. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You get that? And if you are Christ, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. If God has circumcised your heart, if God has regenerated your heart, if God has made you spiritually alive, if God has united you to Christ by faith, if God has adopted you into his family, if you truly belong to Christ, all of which you can see confirmed in your turning from sin and your trusting in Christ as the only possible way to save you, if you trust in Christ alone, then you, brothers and sisters, are true Israel. You are Israel. God chose to make you the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by grace through faith. Your faith and your baptism mark you as a covenant son or daughter of God. 
You are an heir according to God's covenant promise by grace through faith in Christ alone. And so because of the sovereign work of God through Christ for you and in you and because of your union with Christ by grace through faith, you must hear God saying directly to you, I have loved you. I have loved you. Yes, God has loved even you and me. God loves his chosen people, and your union with Christ proves to you that God loves you with his electing and particular and eternal love. God will honor his covenant and love you forever. He won't let you go. Oh, no. No, he won't let you go because he gave his son to purchase you, to redeem you, to have you. Why would he let you go when he wants you? Based on nothing that you have done. And he sets his love, chooses to set his love on you. He cannot stop loving you, the saints, because of his promise that he made many years ago. You belong to him. So, before we head into God's scathing but gracious rebuke, you have to hear God tell you, I have loved you. If you get that as the tone of this book, as the reason the rebuke comes, then when the rebuke comes, you hear it as a loving father loving you by telling you some things that are really wrong with you. And he wants to spare with you and to change you and to conform you into the image of Christ. Then you hear love in the rebuke. You don't hear, well, God seems so angry at everybody. No, 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 no. I have loved you. Hear that first. So leave here today confident, completely confident, because of your union with Christ, that God loves you. Loves you. Let's pray. Father, there are some tough things that we have to talk about because you put them in Malachi. And God, these things are not tough for you. They're tough for us because we're confused people. You see these things perfectly clearly and you say, glorious. And so God, I just pray that you will, by your spirit, work in our questions, work in our doubt, work in our anger, work in our frustration, Work in whatever we feel towards the doctrine of election and help us to see the truth that you have put there. Help me to be accurate, to simply stick to the text and to try to reveal what Malachi meant when he wrote this prophecy, what you meant to communicate to us through him. And I pray for my brothers and sisters. They're really, they have some hard work. I got some hard work, but they've got some hard work too because they need to study the Bible on their own and test everything that I say. So the responsibility is on both of us, God, to both preach the truth and to hear the truth and to respond to the truth with joy and comfort and peace. So God, the only thing I can do is ask that your Holy Spirit works to reveal for us the love of God that is so clearly evident in these verses, but that is very interestingly communicated. Your defense for your love of Israel is maybe not what our defense would have been. And so, God, it's going to take a lot of work, a lot of spirit, 
a lot of truth for us to, to actually understand what you're trying to say. So prepare us for next week, which will be the second part of this, God. Work in our hearts all week as we study this together. In Jesus' name and for your glory, amen.